Welcome to Incognito the Podcast, where I converse with interesting guests from a variety of fields and disciplines about how they foster inclusive workplaces and communities. In today's podcast, I find myself in deep conversation with the gentleman who was the Deputy Attorney General of the United States during 9-11, and how that cataclysmic event necessitated a whole lot of cooperation across many different levels of government. Larry Thompson brings his 49 years of legal experience to the table and leaves listeners with some very valuable tools. And for a man who has devoted himself to service, whether to his country, his community, or clients, his years of experience offer us all some real value in creating inclusive workplaces. Welcome to Incognito the Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fosberg, and with me today is Larry Thompson, who serves as the counsel to the Atlanta law firm of Finch McCraney. In 2017, Mr. Thompson was appointed by the U.S. Department of Justice's Independent Corporate Compliance Monitor and Auditor for Volkswagen AG. Mr. Thompson previously served as PepsiCo's Executive Vice President of Government Affairs, General Counsel, and Secretary until his retirement in 2014. At PepsiCo, he was responsible for the company's worldwide legal function, its government affairs, and public policy organizations, and its global citizenship and sustainability team. He also oversaw the company's global compliance function and served as president of the PepsiCo Foundation. Mr. Thompson's government career includes serving in the U.S. Department of Justice as the former U.S. Deputy Attorney General under George W. Bush. In 2002, Attorney General John Ashcroft named Mr. Thompson to lead the National Security Coordination Council. Also in 2002, President Bush named Mr. Thompson to head the Corporate Fraud Task Force. He led the Justice Department's Enron investigation. Previously, Mr. Thompson was partner in the Atlanta firm of King and Spaulding. He also served as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern Districts of Georgia. In that role, he directed the Southern Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, and served on the Attorney General's Economic Crime Council. In July 1995, Mr. Thompson was appointed to independent counsel of the Department of Housing and Urban Development Investigation by the special panel of U.S. Circuit Court judges appointed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And in April of 2000, Mr. Thompson was selected by Congress to chair the Judicial Review Commission on Foreign Asset Control. Larry Thompson, welcome to the podcast. I'm laughing because that was a mouthful. <laughs> Good to be with you. I, I'm I'm tired just listening to all that. <laughs> we spoke briefly before we started the podcast about the about the reading of your bio and how it could take the entire podcast. We were jokingly referring to that, but I I'm just curious, and, and I'm you know you're well aware of your accomplishments. How does it feel to hear that read? Well, that's an interesting question, Michael. Um, it's sort of amazing uh, in the sense that uh, each of the activities that you mentioned, there are certain things that happen, good and bad. And so when you hear all that, you're thinking, wow, did I really do all that? And how did I get through it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. And and I have the same, you know, like I, I, I do a lot of public speaking. And so I provide a bio. You provided me your bio. I provide my bio for people and they read it. And it feels... I have, you know, I have so many different emotions going through me when I hear it. Yes, you, you, you do have emotions. And 
and there are ups and downs with each assignment and it, each each uh, activity that you read i kind of had a glimpse of something that happened during that period of time good yeah. and bad um, but at the end of the day uh, i think uh, after hearing um, that list of uh, activities that i've been involved in during my career i don't know i don't like to call them accomplishments so but more activities and things you know i'm very proud of the fact that i've been able to do all those things and i think I've been able to do them effectively, and as a result, it's been a net plus for society. Yes, yeah, I'm. I'm so glad you you refer to it as activities because I want to delve into this uh, as I do with all my guests. This idea of, of course, we provide a bio and it's a list of our accomplishments, but some of those accomplishments define for us who we are, but many of them don't. And so the question becomes really that I want to ask you is. How do you see yourself? What identities are core to how you see yourself in the world? Well, I, I see myself first as a father, as a husband, as a friend. But I do think importantly, I see myself as a lawyer who has been fortunate enough to have many years of experience, to have served many clients. I think serve them effectively. Yeah. I see myself in a broad range of identities, if you will. And I think with respect to all of those identities, as I think back, the word service is a very important, mm. is a very important ingredient as it relates to what I've been fortunate enough to do over the years. Uh, especially, you know, service to my communities, service to my clients. Um, and you know fidelity to my children and all of that's has been has been very important to me during the course of my uh, life and and career yeah i love that um because service implies a place of working with people working for and with people and so we're going to delve into that in our conversation today uh about how you go about doing that but before we get you know too far into that i want to ask you especially especially with the lawyer label let's just we'll, we'll just say that for I, it, it's many things but and others that are a part of your core identity have you ever felt walking into a room that your identity was or might be an obstacle it's an interesting question uh, not really yeah I've never felt my identity, how I identify myself or how others may identify me. Yes. I've felt that to be an obstacle. I uh, sometimes, to respond to your question, sometimes perhaps walking into a room, I've been uneasy, uh -huh. but not an obstacle. And I'd like to just talk about something that I've, I've used in speeches over the years. Um, both of my parents, they were very good parents, but neither of them had a high school education. Neither one of them graduated from high school, but they were good parents. And over the years, I remember distinctly, both of them stressed that there was nothing I could not accomplish. Yeah. Nothing. I, I don't even said, I don't even remember them saying you, you can never be president of the United States. Growing up in a small town in Northeast Missouri, Yes. There were no limitations 
placed on me by my parents in terms of what they expected I could accomplish. And I, I really jokingly like to talk about the fact that it was not until I took, I think, a sociology or economics class in undergraduate school, my sophomore year, that I realized from the academic standpoint, I fell into the definition of disadvantaged. And I never thought of myself as disadvantaged. I know, I knew obviously that we were not rich. Uh, I knew that we were on the lower tier of the economic scale, but I never thought I was disadvantaged. I never thought there was anything that I could not accomplish. And I attribute that to my parents and my extended family. So I need to ask, so you were thought of, or you came to understanding that you were disadvantaged because of? From the, the scholars, I was disadvantaged because my parents didn't have a didn't certain have. amount of education. I lived in a certain kind of neighborhood. Yes. Um, our uh, annual income was a certain amount. Yeah, these are all the criteria for uh, being labeled either upper class, middle class, working class, or disadvantaged. I see. Yes. Yes. And, yes. And so I kind of fit in. We kind of fit in at the higher level of the disadvantage. Disadvantage. And so that, that's the way the um, academics viewed people with my background. But I never viewed myself that way. Right. Well, and as you said, your parents reinforced the idea that you could accomplish anything you needed to or wanted to accomplish. Did you ever was was there ever any indication to you that it was because of your blackness? Well, obviously, growing up when I did. Yes. I'm, I'm 77 now. <laughs> I went to an all black school. OK. In Hannibal, Missouri, by law. Uh, yeah. And I, I do recall segregation, uh, legal segregation, if you will. Yeah. Notwithstanding all that, uh, I was raised in the in the atmosphere, if you will, of believing that you can do anything you want to. Yes, right. And you're and you are just as good as anyone else. Yes. Yes. Indeed. I, I want to also ask about you mentioned earlier that you didn't feel that it was an, your identity was an obstacle walking into a room, but you you said at times you felt uneasy. Could you could you elaborate on that? Well, obviously, uh, from a racial standpoint, if you're walking into a courtroom, for example, yes, as a young lawyer and the judge is white, the jury is a majority white. You might feel a bit uneasy. Uh-huh. But I never felt like I couldn't present my case. Right. I never felt like I didn't have a chance to prevail. Yeah. And I've always been very confident in my training and my education. Yes. So I, I think that's the distinction between mm -hmm. being uneasy or feeling like it's futile. Right. And I've never felt like anything that I've done was futile. Yeah. Or that I couldn't accomplish something. Yeah. You walked in with confidence about your abilities and what you could do, right? Yes, I I, I did. Yeah, that's great. So so then let's get to this a little bit about um which might you know dovetail with the, the idea of service. 
in your work, and you've done a lot of different things in the in the legal sphere and in the government and whatnot, how do you go about creating an environment that is conducive to collaboration? Well, I've had a number of uh, leadership positions mm -hmm. in the law over the course of my career. I didn't always start at the top. I had to work my way <laughs> up. But over, over the years, I think... Um, What's been important to me, either in terms of um, a partnership on a project or as a leader, is teamwork. And I've often said there's no I in the word team. Mm -hmm. That if there's a project and you have others working on the project with you, or if there's an assignment, or in my case, a case, you work together with people. And, um, Michael, over the years, I've been very fortunate to work with some very you know, good lawyers, good business people who have lots of accomplishments. And one of the things I remember from one of my mentors, Judge Griffin Bell, mm. who the attorney general uh, under Jimmy Carter. Yes. And Judge Bell was fond of saying there's no limit as to what you can accomplish as long as you don't care who gets the credit. Mm. I never have been one to take the credit for things. And if, if we had a, an assignment or a project that was successful, everyone got the credit. And again, I always stress that this was a team effort. No I in team. How, this, that's, that's wonderful and what a great quote. But how do you, how do you go about creating a cohesive team what what how do you make people feel uh like they're, they're all of their voices are a part of that well i i think you have to be first of, first of all you have to listen to people be willing to listen mm -hmm. i think a part of it is being honest with people mm -hmm. candor in, in in terms of the way you deal with people is important be transparent, not make certain that you that everyone is convinced that you do not have a hidden agenda. Yeah. And that we all are on the same page as to what we want to accomplish. For example, if it's a legal assignment for the client, we want to do we want to serve the client's interest and do something from a professional standpoint that's in the interest of the client. I've always tried to approach my work with uh, candor, with transparency, and because I am a lawyer with professionalism. Mm -hmm. And so I think over the years that that kind of approach to things has put me in good stead. Yeah, those are all really helpful. I, I'm going to sort of... By the way, yeah. I, excuse me for interrupting you, but That's right. I've done some teaching at law school over the years, and, and I, I have been fortunate in life. At this stage of my life, I don't think I'm going to need a tin cup as I get in the air of my dotage, but <laughs> I've never been focused on moving through my career for the sake of money huh. or more for more income, higher pay. Yes. Uh, what has interested me in my career and perhaps why I've done a, a number of different things is, you know, I've been interested in doing things that are a personal satisfaction and professional satisfaction to me. You know, how can I become the very best lawyer I possibly can be? And I've been interested in doing things that I think are important. 
and how that it might have an impact on society. So that's why the whole notion of public service has been a very mm. important part of my of my career. Yeah. So I think the way I approach what you just asked me about collaboration reflects, you know, how I've gone about my career in terms of uh, oh, yeah. stressing pro professionalism and not doing something just for the sake of yourself, but yeah. for the sake of your client and being candid with people and transparent. Yeah. Yeah. That, that absolutely. There's those, those are parallel uh, objectives. You mentioned, I, I mean, I knew this about you that you had taught at law schools, but you, that wasn't in your bio. <laughs> just another thing. <laughs> just another thing that <laughs> didn't make it in there. So I, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot, and I, I apologize if you haven't had time to think about this, but you have time. I wonder if you could share with listeners um, perhaps a challenging situation. I'm sure there are probably plenty that you found yourself in, in which uh, perhaps there was tension or whatever, but there it required a unifying effort on your part. It required you to help people understand, let's say, we're all in this same, we're in the same page, we're all in the same game. And if you could talk about how you overcame that challenge. Yes. Um, well, there's over my 49-year legal career, there's one one aspect of my career that stands out that really fits yeah. four square in the question that you just asked me. Yeah. And that I was deputy attorney general. Mm -hmm. And September 11th, 2001 oh, in our, oh, wow. yeah. and 3000 over 3000 of our fellow citizens perished because as a result of a terrorist attack. Right. And there was nothing as from the standpoint of the department of justice, uh, there was nothing, um, in our, on, on our shelves, our bookshelves that said, what do you do? And 3,000 of your fellow citizens are murdered. Yes. And so overnight, the mission of the Department of Justice changed as it related to terrorist events. It went from after the fact investigation and indictments and prosecution to prevention. You had men who were willing to sacrifice their lives for their evil cause. So we had to do something to prevent that from happening. And so the mission of the department was transformed. We had to uh, do things to encourage information sharing among the various federal agencies who were responsible for terrorism, the intelligence agencies, the law enforcement agencies, and within law enforcement, the different aspects of law enforcement. That was not easy. And we had to bring people along from doing things that they'd done all their careers one way to doing something another way. Uh, in addition, we had to stand up an entirely new federal agency, and that's the Department of Homeland Security. And there were all kinds of uh, political and practical interest involved in, in that. And early on, Condi Rice asked me to lead, I think we called it the Protection Coordination Committee, which yes. was responsible for laying the groundwork for this new agency, which became the Department of Homeland Security. Uh -huh. And so, you know, that the aftermath of 9-11 certainly required me to to use all the collaborative collaborative skills I had 
and all the collaborative experiences I had up until that date. And I think, quite frankly, we we were very successful in those efforts in terms of changing not only the mission of the Department of Justice, but effectively being being able to deal with the threat of terrorism and terrorism itself more effectively. And we have not had, uh, notwithstanding many attempts, we've not had a, a major terrorist attack since then. Yes. So do you, I, I, I can only imagine as you're, you're talking about how um, departments work together or at the time perhaps didn't work together, do you think that the trauma, the, the, the distinct and great trauma of what took place assisted uh, you in any way in terms of um, uh, gathering people to get on the same page? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't know if it assisted me or other leaders. It, it, it certainly... Um, made it more evident as to why we were trying to do yeah. what we were doing. But there were, a, there were a, lot, a number of people who were vested in doing things the same way. Same way. Mm-hmm. And if you read the report of the 9-11 Commission, I yeah. mean, we knew different parts of the government knew exactly what was going on in their own little sphere, but we were not able to connect the dots and mm-hmm. prevent what happened at 9-11. So I, I do think there was a lot of there were a lot of walls that we had to either tear down or, or go over. Yeah. Uh, but no, no doubt about the, the um, trauma of 9-11 in one way made it really evident as to why we were trying to do what we were trying to do. But on the other hand, it could not appear to be a power grab by yes. me or other people who were trying to change the way we were doing things. It had to be. It had to be a sincere effort uh, to protect the public yes. and, and to make the American people more secure in terms of public safety. And as, and as I often said, that's, that's the most important role of government right. is to make us safe. Right, right. Is there, you know, I know this is a difficult question because I, is there perhaps could you recommend one thing to listeners? I know it's, there's probably many, but if there if there was one thing that you could recommend to listeners that could act as a catalyst to create a more inclusive society or a more inclusive workplace, what do you think that would be? It could be a lesson, a tool, a step, a rule, story, what, what, whatever. Well, I, I I thought about this because over the years. Uh, the whole notion of diversity and inclusion has been an important part of my um, of my leadership mm-hmm. in the private sector or in government. I think the one thing is sort of an understanding as to the importance, or importance may not be the right word, the benefit of diversity and inclusion. Mm. And clearly... The benefit is not just to do something that is good for society or not to do something that you think needs to be changed to make society better. If you're a leader of a business or a government organization, clearly the benefit is to make your organization better. That's that's your role as the leader, to make it better. 
And over the years, it's been very clear to me that an organization performs better when there's a diversity of backgrounds of people. And I'm not just talking about race, but yes. I'm talking I'm talking about geographic backgrounds, yes, economic backgrounds, perspective backgrounds. Yes, yes, backgrounds. yes. And I think um, uh, organizations that I've been involved with perform better when you have this diversity. So it, it's an understanding number one of the importance of of inclusion, and then it's a commitment to inclusion. And I again want to talk about my own personal example. When I was selected to be the general counsel of PepsiCo, Steve Reineman, who was then the CEO, thought it was very important for lots of reasons to have either a person of color or a woman at the head of the legal and government affairs organization of PepsiCo. Mm. He was committed to that idea, but he was also committed that I'm going to find someone who I think Steve is qualified to do this job. I'm not going to select someone who falls short on the skill set or the talent set. He interviewed 17 people. Mm before uh, he got to me and maybe I didn't fit the bill because he interviewed one person after me. (laughs) So, uh, but he was committed to this notion. And so I think understanding is important and commitment to it is important because sometimes you can be discouraged, even if you understand the need, but you can be discouraged because you want to get, you want to move on, but you have to be committed to doing it. Yes. Absolutely. I hesitate to put you in an uncomfortable position, but I want to ask this question as to how you feel about some of the efforts that are happening today in which people are pushing back on the importance and the commitment to DNI efforts. Yeah. Well, um, you know, people are pushing back for all kinds of different reasons. That's true. But but I do think, you know, I call them there's the soft, soft whispers of whether or not we, we need this. Yes. And I think it's because of a lack of understanding. Mm. If I was on the board of a for-profit corporation, for example, one of the things you need to be aware of is some of these terrific studies by McKinsey yes. in, the, in the for-profit world where more diversity and inclusion is not the right thing to do, but it makes your organization better. It makes you perform better to your competitors who are not diverse right, and or inclusive. So I think you're going to have the um, detractors and there are lots of reasons for the detractors. I, I, I don't want to point yeah. fingers and say that people are necessarily bigoted because, you know, some of the people who advocate for diversity and inclusion really don't understand why it's important. And you, you just can't play a numbers game to have a numbers game. So I do think we're going to have to deal with the uh, what I call the whispers of whether or not we need diversity and inclusion. But clearly, uh, there's almost irrefutable evidence that it makes, certainly in the for-profit world, it makes businesses more effective. Yes. And, and, and you need you know more education as to why it's important, the kind of thing that you do. 
Yes. Well, I, I, I often state exactly what you, there's, there's uh, even other than McKinsey, there are other organizations that have yes. done studies that prove the same thing. The business case has been made for the importance of it, whether it's, um, you know, uh, wh whether you just want to look at the bottom line, which increases a considerable amount for companies that are more diverse, or you want to look at outcomes in terms of the people who are much more satisfied in companies that are diverse. Right. There's a lot to support diversity and inclusion. So, And I think that latter point is something that a lot of people don't recognize, but that's been my experience too, the satisfaction of working yes. in, a, in a diverse workforce and yes. co diverse colleagues. I feel that I have grown in that mm -hmm. when that happens. Yeah, because you're learning all different kinds of perspectives and um, cultures and all different kinds right. of people you're working with, which is right. terrific. So I, as as you well know, I'm also obsessed with the idea of, of um, authenticity. And uh, I know that we all define words differently and we have biases and all those kinds of things that affect the way that we, we look at the world. But if I were to ask you what it means to be authentic, how would you describe that? And what does that look like for you? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> But I don't think you can pretend to be someone that you're not. And in today's political world, we all hear the term fake news used. <laughs> yes. You, you can't be fake and you can't pretend to be someone you're not. And again, it gets back to what you and I were talking about earlier, and that's candor uh -huh. and transparency. Yes. I think those two terms are very important. And I think if you're candid with someone, you're transparent with someone, and you're not pretending to be someone you're not, then I think you're authentic, for real, as yeah. I would. But that's the best I think I can do. But there may be a, a more elaborate way to respond to that. <laughs> well, I'm not I I'm not a linguist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's a tough, uh, and that's thus the reason I ask it of guests is I think it's a tough question just in standpoint of actually defining it. Like how, you know, we think about definitions all the time and I, you know, how many of us actually, you know, read a document and then go to a dictionary because we're stumped on a word because we think yeah. it, we don't do that very often. And so um, when we think of authenticity, people think all different kinds of people are authentic, but those might not be people that we think they're authentic. Mm -hmm. And so it's different to each of us as to how we perceive it and how we define it. And I'm just curious how, um, you know, how people look at it. So I appreciate your, your take on it and your, your explanation. That's, that's great. Larry, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. It's it's been wonderful. I appreciate your time. I, I realize you got a lot going on, and a, a book that you're completing and 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 needs to get out there to the public. And I will look forward to that. But before we leave, and maybe you want to mention this as a part of the question I'm going to ask, and you know what this is: is can you recommend a book, a movie, a play, a television show, or something that has inspired you, and tell us why? Yes, that's that's a very profound question. And you told me you were going to ask me something <laughs> similar. Yes. And, um, you know, there, I'm, I'm going to sort of focus on a movie. OK. If you will, because it's it's something that hasn't necessarily uh, had impact for me in terms of my career 
or what I do as as a lawyer, but it's had an impact on me from a personal standpoint. And again, I'm a child of the 60s, and there was a, a movie, it was an English movie that was released in the, I think, late 60s called Georgie Girl. Do you oh, remember? Yes, I do remember this movie. Uh-huh. There was a song <laughs> done by an Australian group, I think, called The Seekers. Uh-huh. Hey there, Georgie which was very popular <laughs> yeah yeah and uh that's that's an interesting movie and i've i've watched it several times over the years and basically you have georgie who was a girl who a lady who was you know not particularly attractive huh? uh, she had a roommate who was very attractive um somehow the roommate dumped the, her boyfriend the boyfriend uh, in a in a moment of whatever um impregnated georgie and then and then dumped her yeah and the movie ends with georgie you know marrying this older man and he loved her a great deal but i i I think it stands for the proposition and certainly i know i've read a lot of people about who talk about this movie as a great movie but it stands for the proposition that you can be happy in life without everything being perfect Mm. And that that concept I've used in my professional life because over the years I've had a number of difficult assignments, a number of difficult projects. And one of the things that I've always stressed for myself and for the people who are working with me is that don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. So Georgie Girl, from a personal standpoint, is very important to me because, um, you know, happiness can come at you in a lot of different ways. And you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to live in Beverly Hills and have two billion (laughs) dollars in your bank account to be happy. (laughs) That is a wonderful thing to leave with listeners to close us out. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, thank you so much um, for being a part of the podcast. Okay, Michael, I look forward to uh, hearing more of your podcast. Thanks again for listening to Incognito, the podcast, season three. If you're a new listener, welcome. I hope you found something here that you can use in your work life or your community. And if you are returning, I'm really happy to continue to have your support. As always, we welcome your suggestions and encourage you to rate and comment in your podcast app. Ratings and comments help people find us and allows us to spread the word about this work. Also, you can find us on Instagram at Incognito the Play. Find us there, follow us, and hit us up with a question or comment. Look, we have limited social media presence, so I'm also urging you to take an additional step to tell someone you know about this work. I'll be back again next week with yet another conversation that delves deeply into identity, authenticity, and ways in which we can create inclusive communities and workspaces.